I have to tell you something. You, you're gonna be mad at me. Tell me what, John? I've been fingerprinted before. What? I before. I was. What? I was 14, but you know, same fingers as now. So I have to tell you. When were you fingerprinted? In Denton, for buying beer and driving your Mustang. At 14? Yeah. Christ, son. Something could happen to that car. I know. It was Terry. I know. That's why I didn't tell you. You know, I send you all over the goddamn planet with the understanding that things you touch while operating in many gray areas of the law, son, many goddamn gray areas, cannot be traced back to you, my son. Now I learn that they can. You people have to tell me this stuff. Yeah, well, you just really like that car. Well, it was Cherry. I know. I always say that. It's, it's kind of gross. at my texts from the other evening between me and Andrew Walsh. Believe I said anybody need a dead Tom Tavner? Cuz I will find you a dead Tom Tavner. That's just this is the beginning of his infuriating behavior in this particular episode of Patriot. Hi everybody, welcome to Macmillan Men. It's the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show. Patriot, my name's Luke Burbank, number one, uh, number one Tom Tavner detractor. And over there is my friend Andrew Walsh, a fellow fan of the show. Uh, where would you put your level of, like, you're not a Tom Tavner stan. I don't think that there is, that's even a category of person at this point. But do you think, do you, does he bother you as much as he bothers me? He doesn't bother me as much. I think that it's a very complex character. But I think that if there's any question whether or not this show is about bad parenting, uh, this episode definitely breaks that wide open, yeah. both with him and a get. And I think there's supposed to be parallels there as well. Well, and Leslie, too, kind of. And and Leslie as well, and more, more of that to come. Now, here, I've got a really big, big, important question for you regarding this show, regarding okay. our show, regarding our friendship. Um, mm. Had you seen this episode before or not? Because it was my impression that you had seen this, but the shock and awe that came across my text line last night after you finished this episode makes me think this was – we have broken through. We are now to new territory for you. Is this correct? We are now officially in uncharted waters for me as a this viewer of the exciting. television show Patriot. Yeah, I thought that I had seen it. Because I thought I had a memory of John kind of waking up on that balcony or whatever you want to call it, that sort of ledge area after he's done this jump. But I definitely um, – I, no, I mean maybe I'd seen the first two minutes, but but very soon it became clear to me that this was all new territory uh, for me. I think if I'm being honest, some of the Tom stuff is hard for me, Andrew, because I was once uh, a sort of – you know I was a wet black box – you know, sort of mercenary for the U.S. government. And my dad, Walter Burbank, was actually my supervisor, and he also was very bad at taking care of me. So in a weird way, I see echoes of my real life in the relationship between John and his father. So I'm just going to say this kind of right right at the top of the show. A lot of this stuff is triggering for me because of my personal experience doing a very similar job. I am really surprised that that has not come up before. I mean, this is episode 13 of this podcast. I'm recovering memories, honestly, by the week. Um, and that's just one that I recently recovered. Is so, there any chance yeah, you're I having a... a psychotic break and you've been watching the show so much that you're now thinking that you're in the show? Um. Here, let me you're play keep, American weird, Pie you for you, calling, and you tell me you how that makes you feel. You keep calling it a TV show, but I'm just <laughs> talking about what really happens to me on a day-to-day basis. Um, this is episode three of season two. It's called The Guns of Paris. And um, 
it's uh, the uh, part of why I think I was a little bit confused of if I'd seen the episode or not uh, previously was because I did remember the American Pie song being blasted at John while he's in that sort of torture box. Um, and so that seemed familiar. But what I did not remember, what I hadn't seen was that he's this this episode opens. He's in there with a, a British guy and they're trying to talk during the refractory period. Uh, in between airings of American Pie. Of course, for listeners of our other show, TBTL, this takes on a certain significance because we once did a 24-hour long episode where we buffered in between each hour of broadcasting. We would play the song American Pie by Don McLean, but not even the regular version, a special version you had edited, Andrew, that's even longer Mm -hmm. than the regular version. It's officially called the Andrew Walsh Extended Remix, I believe, in my files. (laughs) That's my air horn sound effect that I do. Pew, pew, pew. Um, and what was funny is there's a moment where this other guy says, I'll talk to you in four minutes or whatever. And I was like, I think the song's longer than that. But I think I was referring in my mind to our special Andrew Walsh remix, which I believe was eight to 10 minutes. Long. No, but the thing um, is, I think you're right about that. I thought it was funny that he said that too, because American pie length, that's the whole is point. It's a notoriously is it, long it's song. It's a notoriously long song that I ended up making longer, which was kind of funny, but that's the reason Oh, I see. You know what, though? The album version is the eight-minute version, but there are single versions. Oh, it's a radio play. Yeah, four and a half minutes long. So, okay. Of course, they would have Googled that before they wrote it in. I mean, it's a specific thing you can know. Um, Although, if I'm the torturers, I'm playing the album version. Yeah, let's be honest. Exactly. They have to wait, though. What is it, 40 seconds in between because they have to rewind the song? Are they playing on a cassette Something like that. Yeah. Something like that is going on so that they're able to to talk. And the takeaway, well, two things happen in that brief conversation. We learn kind of where John got this jellyfish uh, metaphor from. And then we also learn that basically whoever is doing the advance on this stuff sucks. Mm-hmm. Like the British guy, had the, they had the wrong passport number in his passport. You know, John's had his own issues with the advance work. And my takeaway from that was any job you have, there are going to be people, people who are slightly incompetent. <laughs> at their job it just sucks when that job is putting you in real physical danger yeah and now the incompetence that we see across uh, you know the intelligence community in the u.s we see that because this guy's british right he works for british intel right. and so there's all these parallels right and when you look at the bag man's dad who looks so much like um Actually, he looks kind of like Leslie, doesn't he? He doesn't really look like Tom. But all the parallels between the family members and the and the employees of these various The Bagman's dad who's there with uh, Cool Rick Doppelganger in the hospital? Yes, exactly. Like oh, that. I think he looks like Salman Rushdie. Yeah, he, he, he does. <laughs> um, but uh, just the parallels, though. I mean, they're drawing very distinct parallels between the parental yeah. figures in all these different families and the workplaces and the law enforcement agencies, the action boys versus the – what do the French guys call their uh, – oh, the cool guy squad or something along the lines of that? Yeah. Um. We we then go from the, the the box, if you will, to Leslie on his flight. Of course, I noted he's in first class. That's just kind of a that's just a thing in my mind from doing too much air travel. I was like, okay, uh, you know, he's uh, not he's not living his absolute best life, but he's got enough status. I mean, they're flying to Luxembourg every other week. He's probably got a I mean, ton of better. status, so he's up in first class. Yeah, he better. And of course, he's having he gets a call from the investigators, and he also is. He's having these moments of clarity about the things that John has done, including, you know, he figures out that probably John was the one who hurt Stephen Chu. He figures out, you know, that that, that John shot him on purpose. It's all kind of coming clear to him. And then again, this is the kind of thing that's interesting to me, to me only, is that then the flight is about to start descending. And I really had this thought, like, man, they give you free booze in first class. Well, on international flights, I think it's all free booze, but they really keep it flowing up in first. And I'm like, wow, Leslie's not availing himself of free alcohol. Maybe he's trying to get back on the straight and narrow. And then he just sort of like, just sort of with a sense of self-satisfaction, just brings a glass of wine up to his lips. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, there we are. There's our guy. He is definitely still leaning hard into his... um a drug and alcohol situation, which in a bizarre way is going to actually come in handy, of course, at the end of the episode. Another thing is we go to the credits pretty fast here, which I love about this show. There's not a standard like we go X number of minutes and then it's time for the credits. It's like I feel like they must have just sat down and said, well, these are key things that we need to establish. And then when they've been established, then it's time for the credits, because I feel like last week 
it was long. It felt like it was seven or eight minutes before the credits. In this case, it's just basically the box and then Leslie, and then we're right into Sure Shot. Can you remind me what happened at the very, very beginning of... Oh, it was 18 months earlier. We see Alice starting to piece things together in the States and then her making her way over to France after stealing the dog. So, yeah, that was all pre-credits. This one, it's funny that you're mentioning the kind of cold open because for some reason, this one opening with the guys in the box in Egypt... Um, John and uh, the guy who calls himself Spike, which I think is interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah. He seems totally okay with the fact that he doesn't know his name. You get the yeah. sense he's been through it before, and he's just kind of like, this is the part of the process I'm in. I'm in the part of the process of being broken down as a human that I don't remember my name, so let's just go with Spike. And it's been one week, right? I don't remember if we yeah. know how long John ends up spending in there, but it's just so horrific to think about. By the way, I'm sorry to go back, but in the box, I had a thought watching it this time that I remember puzzling last time, too. I think I have a pretty clear answer to it. But at first, I thought that these guys were in separate boxes, separate cells, separate cages, and that we they were both looking just kind of – because we never see them together. Do you think that's a deliberate thing? I think by the end of the scene, I realized, no, no, they're both in the same box. They're probably looking at each other, but we just never see a shot with both of them. Do you think that that is significant? Interesting. I assumed they were in the same box because that was just what I assumed. But it's also conceivable that they were next in boxes next to each other because I did have the thought well, that's pretty bad planning on the part of the, um, uh, let's just say, torturers uh, to put two people in the same box because then they could theoretically communicate. So maybe what's being implied is that they're in boxes that are next to each other and they're talking, although there's no point where they're like sort of you know, putting their faces up against the air holes and it, it doesn't their body language doesn't read like they're talking to somebody who's in a separate box. Exactly. But I would say if you're the torturers, get another box. Just invest in your invest in your future as a business and get two boxes if you're going to have two guys, because, you know, you're you're allowing 45 seconds of important colluding time mm -hmm. uh, in between every airing of American Pie. You can afford a tough shed. Boy, you know what? Get a tough shed, guys. So we come back from the credits. John's uh, unconscious there from jumping off the building. And there's this, I find, just kind of really beautiful, kind of sad moment of Birdbath, Dennis, and Edward just discussing how they all kind of screwed up in mm -hmm. one way or another. And they're all just, they're really the gang that can't shoot straight. Mm -hmm. and And it's just this kind of, again, it's, you, you, your your heart goes out to them because, to be honest, they're all in over their head. And, in fact, that's something that Edward ends up kind of reminding Dennis of. Because Dennis is, is beating himself up over having gone to the hospital, over getting stabbed in the thigh. And, and Edward says something to the effect of, you know, like, you know, this is a lot to deal with or whatever. And so they, they sort of agree that they're the three fucketeers. <laughs> then there's this, like, beautiful moment of them. It's kind of like the anti-cool guy moment where, you know, you're walking in slow motion as a team about to go kick some butt. But it's like three guys whose self-confidence is at an all-time low kind of ambling down some stairs in slow motion <laughs> on their way to we don't exactly know where. Right. And, well, I want to jump ahead. I have some questions about where they're going and where they end up. But maybe we'll save those for later on. I do love that scene. And there's something about – I mean, this show has its – it's various kind of structures that it likes to go to and the idea of like a group of people working together, whether it's stockings and skirts or these three now, or again, the action boys or whatever, the cool cop club in Paris. But um, I just love these three characters on screen together. Like it, yeah, it, everything else just goes away as far as like plot mm. or anything else. When I, I just, I would just watch a show based on these three characters. I'm really at the point where, like, I will watch – well, I mean, I'll watch any scene in this show because it's a great show. But I am paying particular close attention any time Birdbath is in there. I don't yes. know why. Yep, yep. Something about his character that just is very mesmerizing to me. Again, I like all of the characters, but, like, I'm very glad to see that he's playing an important role in uh, in this episode. Because, yeah, there's just something about how forlorn he is. And then, you know, again, just, yeah, the dynamic between the three of them. Is is a is an interesting one uh, to watch. Uh, this is a teeny tiny detail, but as the owner of a dog that sometimes has long toenails in a house that has hardwood floors, <laughs> there is this scene of Alice at the safe house, and Charlie the therapy dog just walks. 
kind of crosses the frame and you just hear that sound of like slightly too long dog toenails on a hardwood floor mm-hmm. and I just like I love that touch that cannot happen on accident and uh and it it has to to me it has to be because somebody who is in charge of the show or writing on the show or has a say on the show knows that that's a very specific sound and experience like they put that in intentionally just as a fun little as you would say lanyap Yes, and it's funny because I know that word because I knew a dog named Lanyap. Uh, and it's oh. a very uh, a lonely scene, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. it's Alice alone sitting on the edge of a bed. She's backlit by just like whatever afternoon lights coming through the windows. The rest of the apartment is kind of dark. And then the dog just walks directly hmm. across the frame. I mean, this really is... I feel so sad even I hope that I'm misreading this but it's it, you feel like Alice has has and I said this I think talking about last episode it just feels like Alice something broke inside of Alice having to be part of this and maybe it was maybe it was better when it was don't ask don't tell or she had less information certainly she was very afraid for John but now that she's been to his world and seen it she just seems like she's completely now just sort of detached from everything and she just wants to get uh, the little girl, I think her name is Mina. She just wants to get Mina back to a get and get out of there. I mean, that's literally what happens when she goes to meet her at the uh, whatever that is diner or something. And uh, and she's, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it's basically like she shows up and I, I get says something kind of like, do you know where Tom Tavner is? And she says, I don't know. I just showed up. And I have your daughter, and now you have her back, and I just want to go home. Like, she just wants to be out of it, and I worry that it also means she wants to be out of the relationship with John. Oh, interesting. I didn't take it that way. I took it as she wants out of here. Um, maybe I'm missing something. Uh, I, I didn't. Maybe I'm just good at ruining relationships, so I recognize <laughs> a certain pattern. You've seen but it. But it's like, I, I honestly, I mean, that's <laughs> kidding on the square, as you say. Like, it's there is something in Alice's character that feels to me like a a bridge has been crossed, uh, you know, that can't, there's no going back. And it's, I mean, again, I hope I'm reading into it way too much, but I feel like she, I mean, part of it's because of what she said to Mina in the previous episode where she basically said, you know, nothing matters more than your life. And that includes, and again, this just might be my read on the situation. I haven't even, I haven't seen any more episodes, so I hope I'm wrong. But it's like, um, you know, she says, if, if basically, if, if if John, if my husband has to go do something else that's going to hurt him, fine, because it ain't we ain't using you for collateral anymore, little lady, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. I don't know why she slips into John Wayne there. I thought that was a weird choice for the actor. I wouldn't um, question who it. Portrays though. her, but but I, I respect it. I respect the work of um of uh what is her name? Kathleen Monroe, who plays Alice. Um. I also want to point out one thing that is happening. I think it is a brilliant little touch, and I and I know that we can't we can't agonize over every minute of the show. Otherwise, we'll never we'll never finish this podcast. But um, I like that while we've talked about all these scenes, they're intercut with shots of John still passed out on the ground after you know purposefully jumping, but yeah. knowing he said several times in the last episode, "I'm going to do this jump. I'm going to be knocked out for was it 17 minutes or 18 Something minutes? Like I 17 can't recall." Minutes. Um, and so they keep sh- they keep showing him, and they keep the camera on him for a while passed out as if something is happening kind of like okay we're checking in with all the characters they keep checking in with him and then eventually we see when the 17 minutes is up and he kind of kind of groggily uh and stumbly gets to his feet so he can get into the um the city hall or wherever they keep the gun records yeah no i think that's a great piece of filmmaking and again to me it just sort of highlights also in this odd way the connection between well, I don't know, maybe the disconnection. Everyone's talking, you know, the, Leslie and Tom are talking about being bad fathers and and um, and Alice is trying to re- reunite the kid with a get and uh, the three fucketeers or it's like all this stuff is going on. And meanwhile, John is just like to me, it really points up just how everybody's in danger. But John is in the most danger. John's the one who's fucking unconscious right now. I don't know. There's just something that really puts some a few things in perspective about, like you said, the way they keep checking back in with his character as all this stuff is happening unbeknownst to him um, and yet kind of related to him. I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, as will come as no surprise to the listeners of this show, I just have increasing anxiety around how 
fucked he is. Walking like, across that getting, floor is so... Watching him uh, walk across the floor after he steals the gun records and just a wide shot of him walking... Bow-legged. Un- steadily bow-legged and then does end up stumbling to the ground and then jumps back up is... You are on the edge of your seat the whole time. And I and I just know, like, less and less vision. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that one bothers mm-hmm. me so much. But just, like, vision tunneling down mm-hmm. and just, like, having to do more and increasingly difficult things. Like, how is he going to take on that whole sort of retinue of, 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 of sexy slash dorky uh, soldier models? You know, like, how is he going to really do any of that? Um, of course, we haven't even gotten there yet. But the other thing that happens uh, is that Tom actually does manage to intercept Leslie and gets Leslie to sort of um, go past his, like, police escort that's waiting there to pick him up to interview him. And um, sign says, I wonder- Leslie Claret, by the way, which is funny. The oh, guy I didn't even notice name. that. He's holding a sign that says Ms. Leslie Claret. That's great. And that actually probably helps. There's two things that I'm wondering if they help here, okay? One is they probably think they're looking for a woman. Yeah. So I wonder if the cops, if they're not, they don't know what Leslie looks like. The other thing is I wonder if Leslie being drunk on the plane makes him more amenable to going with Tom because he's not fully in his right kind of angry mind. He's more like he's a little more pliable. I mean, I might be overreading into the situation, but for whatever reason, he goes with Tom, skips past this you know, police escort, and they end up in that other hotel having a real heart-to-heart. I still think Tom is terrible at describing what John does. Like, I just want to constantly forget about the, my like long-running beef with the Tom Tavener character. I just feel like the way he describes things is always extra confusing. Like, he'll sort of, he's got a dog with him at all times. It's like, well, A, he doesn't. He's lying prone on a balcony, and Charlie is with Alice, so let's get real. Number two, that doesn't mean anything to Leslie. There's no context. Like, I get really bothered when people in conversation – I give too much detail and context for everything. I overdo it. But when people underdo it – like, when Tom just says out of the blue to Leslie, he has a dog with him at all times. It's like, what does that even mean to Leslie? Yes, uh, I thought the same thing on a couple of things. I agree with you about the him maybe being more pliable by having that wine on the plane, and, and I'm okay. guessing more than just that wine on the plane. Um, and regarding the dog thing, like just say therapy dog, just like that. Yes, that one Thank word you. paints a much more complete picture of what you're trying to get across here. Now, that's a frustration to me as a viewer. I mean, not. I mean, there's a reason why he talks that way. I think it's supposed to be a frustration. Yeah. I don't think it's an accident. Um, but I guess we don't have to worry about it too much because, you know, um, Leslie seems to grasp it. Okay. Leslie seems to right. grasp the seriousness of the situation. Um, and I will say that while John walking across that floor is like almost mesmerizingly anxiety producing. Um, in a very anxiety-producing part of the show, the moment that we see that Leslie is going to go with uh, Tom is one of the... I mean, the show does not offer a lot of moments of relief or release for you, Mm -hmm. right? And you're just like, I just physically relaxed when I saw, okay, he's going to at least hear him out. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting, too, is, of course, they really start bonding over... I mean, the thing that Tom says... That really, I think, gets Leslie's attention is Tom talking about being a shitty father mm-hmm. and how basically John's a better son than Tom is a father. And that resonates with Leslie because I guess he feels the same way about his son. And so then they're like, OK, now they're on the same page. Now Leslie is like invested in this process. It's funny because I also feel like when Leslie's like, I've been driving him too hard. It's like, I mean, yes and no. Like Leslie could use some tone help, but he has had a tremendously shitty employee in John yes, Like, really I kind of don't blame Leslie for being... I mean, let's put aside the shooting him in the face part mm-hmm. and the fact that all of the Stephen Chu stuff, having to learn hearts and souls on the giant piano, that's all because of John. Everything that sucks for Leslie, pretty much, is because of John Lakeman. Even in, up to, like, you know, kind of sort of his relapse, you know? Yes, Presumably, if he's totally not in the hospital, relapse. he doesn't relapse. Uh, and yet, it's interesting that Leslie's like, I've been driving him hard. Like, it's weird that he takes some guilt around that. I agree. And I also still, during that scene, I'm also thinking, uh, 
how much are you having a, this realization because you are under the influence right now? I think it's, of mm. course, it's, I don't want to sleep on the fact that he even mentions, you know, and, and there's no doubt. Like, I, you're, I almost feel like you're, you're, you're hedging too much with it. I mean, there's no doubt that the whole storyline here is that Leslie was getting his life together. Like Leslie was fine. Like yeah. Leslie had effed up as bad as you can eff up your life uh, years ago. And slowly he's crawled his way back. He got his parking spot back. He got his old job. back. Yes. He got his, the respect of his, his colleagues and his position of power back. And then he he's on the road to, patch things up with his son and it is 100% John Lakeman who has thrown him off that path in many ways both well, professionally and personally I would argue Tom Tavner sure. but yes okay sure you know yeah, what I mean yeah, like John yeah. Lakeman at the behest of Tom Tavner but yes still you know from his um, perspective though he came sure, into sure. this he sat down on this edge of the bed thinking like this young man has destroyed my life yeah do you think that Tom and Leslie knew that the the that particular cop, uh, Lieutenant Guy Paul Puyang, do you think that they knew he was coming or they just left by – I mean, I guess Tom probably had a ticking clock maybe in his head, although we will learn he's pretty bad at spycraft Like, because um, they're gone when, when Puyang shows up. I think that they knew that they couldn't stick around because clearly Leslie had blown off his set appointment to be interviewed by the cops. And when that happens, you mm-hmm. know that somebody's going to come looking for you, I assume. Yeah, no, that's I think you're probably right about that. Um, another little dazzling detail. Nan, the newly promoted detective, her dad is a tugger. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. A blind, a blind tugger at that. Yeah. Nothing happens without a reason. Now, let me ask you this. I don't know if this was just my retention uh, issues popping up or uh, if we're still waiting to find out. What didn't the father say to Nan in the wig shop? I have something I need to talk to you about. We still don't know what that is, right? It seems like this would have been a good scene to explore that. Maybe he said to her, I have macular degeneration and uh, I need you to. I need you to basically be my eyes on the tugboat. By the way, yeah. this is a weird thing, and this is just is has to be in the category of pure coincidence. The actor who plays Nan, her first name, guess what her first actual name is in real life? Um, I-E-Y-E. Oh. Uh, oh, really? No kidding. I didn't know that. There's no way that, that she was cast because her first name is E-Y-E, but it is funny that the actor is named E-Y-E-I, and then her role is to be the eyes of her father, mm. the tugger, who's losing his sight. Yeah, that is interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that. And also, did we realize that the dad was blind in episode one? Was I missing? I, I didn't put it yeah. together. In fact, it took me weirdly a long time, even in the tugboat scene, which is funny because they're not like being subtle about it. It's like he's trying to look at her her promotion thing, and then he says, "Even from here, I can't mm. see it." And then she's listening to him, like, "What's you know up ahead?" It's like it's not. It's not hard to pick up, and yet only at the end I was like, oh, he can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. You would think that there would be uh, heavier regulations in Europe about um, blind people <laughs> tugging. but I mean, you'd think, well, you know, that's why the British had to Brexit. They had mm-hmm. to get away from those onerous international laws. Um, so Alice uh, does try to return uh, Mina to a get, and... I mean, gets back in her car. And honestly, the kid's English is troubling to me. It's almost like, are you a poltergeist right now? Was there something upsetting about the way Mina is speaking in English? Is it the first time we've heard her speak English? It was unaccented. It freaked me out. You know what? I think you're right. You know what? It is jarring. Well, it's jarring for a lot of reasons. We don't know that she's in the car. Yeah. Um, right. But you know what? That, uh, of course, you're right. That was lost on me. Suddenly she speaks English. I don't think we've heard her speak English before. And unaccented English, like, it's just, that's why it felt like some other voice was emanating from her through some bizarre, like, horror film plot, like, take me to Disneyland right now, Alice. What? So, once again, by the way, I feel kind of foolish for not even kind of picking up on that, of course, Um, but once again, we see a get kind of displaying a, you know, some bad parenting so that she can pursue whatever she's pursuing, which is still unclear here. And this reminds me of something that somebody um, sent to me. I spent a long time trying to track down this message. I don't know if it was on Twitter or an email or what it was. I don't know who sent this in. But this whole thing about 
the the confusion that we still have about like why is a get taking this money? We thought that she was a you know ethical law person who is trying to find justice in the world, but now suddenly she's just going to take all this money, and we don't know where she's going, and she's got a daughter and somewhere else. she keeps else. dumping her kid. And now she keeps dumping her kid. Um, somebody pointed out that, like, we do see that scene where a get is and maybe going to jump in the shower or something, and we see her back, and she's got, like, this really elaborate, huge back tattoo, and um, it's never been commented that. on, and somebody's like, yeah, I mean... I think the clues are here that she's got a dark past, <laughs> like she's got a dark past or some other life that we don't sure. yet know about. And so, you know, these are these are all being filled in on her back life. But it's not oh, completely it's out of the very blue. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. She is not the, the straight arrow that I thought she was. She's definitely got stuff going on. I'm very curious as a viewer who is now, as I said, in, in I'm in the unknown with this show. I'm very curious to see how this plays out because, yeah, something is dolphinately up with a get and why she keeps, like, basically pawning her kid back off on Alice. Yeah, I am. I have a really big question about this this episode and how I feel like it's a um, maybe a full. I don't want to say tonal shift, but a. There's a shift in the way I am perceiving this entire series, starting with this episode. And Mm. I'm jumping ahead in the plot a little bit here, but I really want to talk to you about this. Um, I think this is the episode where I realize there's a lot of magic happening or magical types of things because... This is a show, and we discussed this in season one, kind of later in season one, season one, that... There's a lot of coincidence. There's a lot of, you know, again, this this more intense kind of parallels and mirroring of families and family structures and, and, and police departments and all of this stuff that's going on. You start to realize, okay, like this isn't a super realistic show at all, right? There's a lot of right. like, kind of humor in the way these – and the, the way things work in this world is not the way things always work in our world. But – This is the episode where the first time I watched it, I think I was deeply confused. I think I just could not shut my brain off about how things went from A to B. Um, And then watching it a second time. Exactly. Now, watching it a second time, I'm like, there's some magical realism in this show that, and and I'm talking specifically about. And I'm sorry that I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I just thought of this and I want to throw it out there. Later on, when we see uh, John on the train, bleeding from his fingers, trying to avoid the Mm -hmm. police officer who's walking behind him on the train, and then he meets up with Leslie and Tom on the train. That is a complete coincidence. That is complete deus ex machina, right? Like, there's no reason why these people should be meeting up on the train, and John is totally surprised by it. And it is a complete miracle, and it's kind of it's because we're living in kind of a magical place where things like this can happen. And there were some other things in this episode too, where I was the first time I watched it, I'm like, wait, how how did they know to be here at this point, and how did they set that up? And I'm realizing, oh, maybe some of the stuff isn't set up. It's just it's just the way things work here. Yeah, I actually thought it was possible John was having a hallucination. Yeah. Although I don't know why John yeah. would know to hallucinate his dad and Leslie. But I was just like, I mean, John should be, you want to talk about a little bit of sort of magical realism. No one's bleeding enough from these gunshot wounds. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I mean, those drops of blood. I mean, I my very first thought when they start walking into the subway tunnel, when, when, when or into the tube or whatever you call it, with two of them sustaining significant gunshot injuries, um, I was like, they're bleeding everywhere. This I watch a lot of these, you know, first 48, like real crime shows. I'm like, this is just going to be a fucking bloodbath on this on this train. And like that one drop is not. And then even to jump ahead later, that amazingly great scene where Edward's baby mama shows up and they're just, you know, Dennis is trying to talk her into sewing his fingers back on. He's just sitting there and his fingers are not bleeding. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like and again, that's just stuff that is not how the real world would work. But 
you're right. I think that's just the world that we live in with this show as the viewers. Yeah, and it's interesting. And again, I, I'm not saying this as a negative thing. I do think the first time I watched it, though, I, I think this was the episode where I thought, oh, season two is very different than season one because it's still a very meticulous show. Again, nothing goes by mm-hmm. without a reason, but it does feel like there's a lot more of just like, okay, Suspend your disbelief here. We're living in in a somewhat magical universe. And I think um, watching that train scene again is what really uh, is what really cemented that for me. And I will say watching it again a second time, I loved it a lot more, like exponentially more because of that, because I wasn't spending so much brain energy trying to figure out what did I miss? How did they know to meet up on the train? What was like at that? what point did Leslie and Tom decide they're going to get on this one train kind of right. thing? They did, and it's like a Christmas miracle. It's like, you know what I mean? It's got the, it almost had the feel I, of I consider it a Coke-mas miracle. Yeah, a Coke-mas miracle. I will write that down as a possible show title. And speaking of which, I know, again, because we're just we're at this point now, and we can kind of double back to the grocer scene because that's obviously huge, and that took my breath away. By the way, just I I I knew as John was singing his song about just wanting to have an easy hour and maybe go to a wine bar. As a viewer of this show, you know that ain't what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what did happen was still so much more than I expected in terms of just the breathtaking, you know, scene. Um, but but um, you know. That's another part of how do I put this? Let's just say if Leslie was doing as much coke as he must be doing for his nose to be doing what it's doing, he would be a mess. He would have not slept. <laughs> I ripped it out. I really. What does he say? Ripped his one off. I can't to, re- recall. Uh, I, I let it rip this week. Really let it rip this week, as he says to that police. Yeah. Guy. Like I'm just. I'm not saying I know from personal experience, but. It's like I I am tracking if Leslie's in this district of of Luxembourg, they're in Luxembourg still, right? He's in Luxembourg, yeah. Um, if Leslie's in this particular part of Luxembourg so we can score, if he's doing coke Wait. nonstop, if his nose is what's that? I'm sorry. Um he was he went to Luxembourg to be interviewed by the police. That's where he got the hotel. That's where they're sitting on the edges of the bed, but clearly they're on this light rail in France where he just stole the gun. So somehow so again, I guess so Tom yeah. must have taken him they're 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 back in Paris now. That would make sense. I mean, again, you're right. It's not even that the show is magical, it's that the show is overly coincidental. Which is there a difference between over coincidence and magic? I don't know. But it's like, you know, there is the argument that Tom and Leslie, because they knew they needed to leave that hotel, because they've now bonded, so Leslie is presumably on board with not talking to the cops. They've had to peace out of Luxembourg. And where do you go? Well, you go to Paris. You get on a train. They could be on the train that, you know, John and the and the, the, the fuck are on. It's conceivable they could have been on that train, but it'd be a big coincidence. And what's even more weird is no one seems that surprised. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. John stumbles over, sans two fingers, slumps over, I think, maybe to die. And then there's his dad and Leslie. And then, like, Tom says, explain what you do. And then John, like, literally for the first time in seven episodes, starts speaking coherently. And just, like, lays into what it is he does. You know, that is, if not magic, very on the edge of magical. Don't you feel – I mean, he speaks coherently when he explains what he's doing to Leslie. But I also think – isn't the joke there that he's describing his work almost in the same cadence of him uh, talking piping jargon. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe. The way he dis- can we just take a quick listen to this? I've, sure. I basically got it right here. So this is him uh, describing what he does, but it sounds to me like this is a uh, Macmillan piping speech, only about spycraft. Tell him everything. I'm a consultant with a governmental department that collects intelligence and implements processes that are paid for and directed outside the prescribed structure of oversight. I don't know shit about dialing nut spacer systems or tamp fixture rim ride and grip configurations. I'm a righty in real life. I'm sorry that I fucked with your important work and with your life, which is also probably important to you. (laughs) But I'm obligated 
and instances to affect action central to the completion of a specific and critical task without regard for ancillary repercussions, which I'm sorry, Leslie. So you kind of hear it there a little bit. It's not all the jargon talk, but the beginning and the end is. Well, I mean, I think to me the takeaway from that is it's all the structural dynamics of flow, Mm -hmm. everything we're doing. His spycraft, us hosting this podcast. (laughs) I mean, not to get too grandiose about things, but I mean, that is – that is, you know, moving things from A to B, and mm-hmm. then all of the like challenges of that. I, if there's a, if there's sort of, it seems a meta message of this show, it's that, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, uh, or a big part of what this shows. So yeah, so I don't think it's. A, I, I'm sure you're right. It's not a coincidence that the way he describes what he does could also just be talking about the way that you know. I'll, I'm very excited when we eventually get a chance to talk to Stephen Conrad about this. Like I, I want to ask him. When the idea of the structural dynamics of flow came to him, was he like a teenager? Was he in his 20s? Like, when did he have this idea about about this concept? I mean, it's almost like I said, it's it's almost quasi religious or mm-hmm. philosophical in some way. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if there's one other thing I can mention, and then again, I realize that I'm the one who fast forwarded us this far into the show. So I don't know if we if we missed anything or skipped over anything. But well, we definitely did. But um, maybe this will actually take us back a little bit. Uh, the song that is featured in this one, the one where John is, you know, singing and doing his narrative yes. explanation, his exposition about what's going on. I thought there were several, or at least two things that really struck me as different about this one that I really liked. Um, the, okay. the song seemed to be evolving. First of all, they were always like very minimalist. It was just him and very, very light guitar strumming. And this one had instrumentation. It was a bigger sound. Um, I don't know if that is on purpose as far as his evolution. But also, I can't think of a song that evolved with the scene as it was going on. Mm-hmm. Like more than ever, this seemed to be John's internal dialogue, which might sound ridiculous. Yeah. It's all kind of internal dialogue, but it's always about things that happened in the past. I didn't right. know He's it was in the a coffee shop made. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or I didn't know this was happening, but this is what happened. But it was all in the past. This one, he's singing about what's happening in the very moment, and then a whole bunch of things happen during this song, and the song keeps going on, and it keeps commenting on what's happening in the moment which definitely seemed like a, a kind of change in vibe to me, and I was there for it. Yeah, I liked this song a lot. I thought it was funny, too. The um, Let's talk about maybe girls respectfully. Yeah, kind of a, <laughs> right. You know, John is such just a, like a funny yeah. little sort of aside. Yeah, um, yeah. I love Yeah, this no, song. I'm with you. Like, And it, it also helped me because I do spend some amount of the time watching this show trying to figure out what's going on. So it's sort of like training wheels for people like me when he's just literally narrating what what's going on and why he's doing it and what his hopes and dreams are because john's a little bit of a black box sometimes you know you just look at him and he doesn't talk a lot and you kind of like well what's going on with this dude Mm -hmm. and in this way you know he just wants to go get a beer um with you know he wants to have one hour of easy time before he has to go take on this stronghold he wants to get a beer with the three uh fuck like maybe go to a wine bar i mean that's also the heartbreaking part is after the shit goes down in the in the um uh you know store we're not going to a wine bar yeah you know, we're probably not going to a wine bar yeah the store thing i did not of course understand that the that that birdbath and ed and dennis are going to all be in the store that was a total shock to me i mean i guess obviously he called them and and when he said i you know called them to meet up that's i guess where he said i mean he he did need ed to he needed edward to sort of do him a favor so it's not inconceivable that one is less magical realism to me and more just like he must have called him and been like meet me at this store but just the choreography of that scene is just from a cinematography standpoint, an acting standpoint, a stunt standpoint is a really cool scene, don't you think in the store? The way it all happens so quickly. Well, yeah, there's just like Everybody has to hit their moment and their mm-hmm. mark sort of perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's like, and I feel like it's kind of one shot. You follow John in, then the store owner comes behind him and then goes to a different part of the store. And then you go down behind John, mm-hmm. who's like rifling around behind the register. And then when he stands up and goes to shoot, it's like he shoots John and then Dennis gets in the way and gets shot. And then Edward gets winged by a bullet and then Birdbath whacks him with the mm-hmm. European dimes. Just like, 
boom, boom, boom. It's like just the that that must have taken them a long time to kind of block that scene out because it happens really rapidly. It happens very rapidly, and you're right. I did not realize it has this kind of one shot vibe. You, it's all one shot from the moment John uh, walks into the bar to the moment he has to go back to pick up the finger. So I, you know, that was a little bit which lost I didn't on me. realize what he was picking up every round that like three times. I thought he was picking up shell casings. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I'm watching too too. much of the first 48 because I'm like, it doesn't matter, bro. Uh, You don't need the shell casings. And it was only later that I realized, oh, he's picking up fingers. Yeah, you see them on the train. Uh, Yeah, no, that is really beautifully done. And that was the other thing that I was um, kind of confused about because I I wasn't sure. Obviously, we saw him talk to Edward on the phone in the, you know, at the end of the last episode. And he said, I need your help. Come, you know, come here to Paris. So we knew that he said to meet up somewhere. I was unclear whether he said, I'm going to be in this store, because I definitely don't think that um, Dennis and Birdbath are supposed to be there. It seemed like they're kind of there on their own volition because they feel bad and they just start following um, Edward mm-hmm. down the stairs in that shot you were referring to earlier. So I wasn't sure if it was another kind of coincidence that they were in the exact right store at the right time or if they knew that this was the plan. But I, I think you're right. I think he must have told them, I'm going to be in this store. Keep an eye out for me. I, don't I know. for some weird reason, even though it's a dark scene, I love the scene of them waiting for the train. By the way, I timed mm-hmm. it. It's not exactly 15 seconds, which, you know, Stephen, here's some <laughs> free advice. Next time, would be a cool what little is dazzling it? deet. It's about thirty-four seconds. If really, I really, it's I it on my phone between between the moment that this is like. By the way, this is why people who create things hate their fans mm-hmm. because nobody needs me timing it with my iPhone as I was. But I thought it would be funny if when he says this train needs to show up in about fifteen seconds, and then if the train came in exactly fifteen seconds later, what I realized was I bet you at some point they considered that, but then they decided they wanted more time to sort of just register on the faces of the various characters what's going on, and fifteen seconds was maybe too abrupt. Maybe, yeah. Because- I assumed it was fifteen. You know, I mean that's how much trust I have in the show, no joke, because I had the same exact thought. I trust but verify, Andrew. That's how <laughs> I live my life. But but um I, that scene is just there's something about the solemnity of it mm-hmm. like you know Dennis is uh, you know Dennis is kind of a, a shit show just generally I can hear him Edward crying behind with it, me right oh my god that's intense and then you know Edward is like not in my mind known for his chill I mean he's dressing up like a beastie boy half the time and running up running amok like and yet there is something about how I think these characters sense the gravity of this situation Maybe because they've been shot. Like, nobody's – like, it's not Tim Roth in Pulp Fiction where he's been shot and he's in the back. Now, maybe it's part of the injury. The injury is more grievous to his character in Pulp Fiction. But it's not – or that's Reservoir Dogs, actually. Excuse me. It's not – like, they're not freaking out. But you know they're freaked out. But they're somehow keeping it together, which is unusual for a number of these characters. And for some reason, that just ups – like – it indicates to me as the viewer how serious shit is that these guys are all just walking. Like, I kind of can't believe that Dennis is not overtly freaking out more. Especially Dennis. Of all of them, Dennis is the yes, one who, like... the most. They, I mean, they literally were able to smuggle money in based on the fact that they know he would pass out uh, right. if he thought he was carrying money through security uh, at an right. airport. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely his character. So you're kind of the most proud of him. And then, of course, moments later, they're on the train. Dennis is... Is freaking out and everybody's trying to calm right. him down and it is so sweet and I know you'll agree with this when everybody's just, mm. everybody's just kind of yelling like you know we've been in situations like this we all have you go you try to steal a gun your fingers get blown off um, yeah, right. and you know everybody's like you calm down no calm down dude I need you to calm down and there's this aggressiveness with it but then finally they get Dennis to calm down by just saying Dennis you're a hero today like you saved my life yeah. I'd put a blue ribbon on your balls if I if I had a blue ribbon like you are a hero here just you say that to me at the end of every episode <laughs> yeah. of TVTL which before and after I appreciate part of my contract yeah part of my contract um so anyway i think that that's both a really sweet moment and also just a good reminder of like interpersonal relationships and how to actually kind of communicate with people and in a certain way kind of get what you need out of a situation isn't always by berating and just barking calm down but reminding somebody of their worth what's funny is that john's character has the presence of mind to do that because he's just kind of i mean well a he's about to die. He's been shot. He's got a lot going on. But let's just say, even on a good day, John is not the greatest uh, sort of um, uh, empath. He's not the greatest at 
anticipating what other people need in conversations. Mm-hmm. So like for him to be like, you saved my life, like that was like pretty smart. I mean, it's true, I guess, and also smart because you're right. Dennis is you get the feeling and then you know later they have the scene at the house, but you kind of get the feeling that it's almost like Dennis doesn't want to die, but if he's going to have to die, having just heard that he saved John's life and that he's John's best friend, it's a pretty good pretty good last thought for him, you know what I mean? Like it it's a very effective way of calming him down and it's almost just like it it really makes it like this wasn't for nothing for old Dennis. Yeah, the best friend line, I forgot that's very important. That is his sole motivation in the world. Then we've got, I mean, that 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 great scene where, or that great bit of dialogue where Birdbath is like suggesting they get a disgraced veterinarian, and then that conversation about if like, well, animals don't even have fingers, and but what about apes? And you know, uh, then we get to this this scene where you really think John is going to get busted because the guard is following the blood, and then uh, uh, you know Leslie's cocaine nose throws them off the scent for at least a few moments and then and again that's kind got, of magical too by the way not just running into them on the train but like i don't think that he purposely bloodied up his nose like he just no. literally had a bloody nose i just wanted to throw that in there right. too. totally yeah no no i mean leslie there's no way leslie can know that that these that john's being pursued um and and so leslie's cocaine related nose bleed is just totally fortuitous i guess there um by the way, I did not know Edward's baby mama is a veterinarian. Um, uh, I don't know if that had ever been established in all the previous things. I know she's just generally mad at Edward. It had. There was some story about oh. a bird early on. I think it maybe oh. it's revealed maybe during a phone conversation. He calls her uh. in the middle of the night at one point and thinks he's going to get her oh, voicemail. Oh, yes, and she had to operate she, on something. And she was like, no, I'm operating on a frog or something along those lines. And he's right. like, okay, I'll let you go. She's like, I'm being sarcastic. Why would I be operating on a frog in the middle of the night? Ah, okay. Um, I don't know. I've done that. Let's sure. not judge. Um, That's slang for something. I don't want to know. Don't one of my favorite lines of this whole episode comes, unsurprisingly, from the Dennis character. And do you know what it is? Is it uh, um, on the train, or is it later? Later on? No, it's when they're at the house. Oh, okay, wh- wherever it is, they end up, and they're trying to talk Edward's baby mama into reattaching. His fingers. Uh, my favorite line comes there from Birdbath. I'll say that one in a moment. But I don't. I don't know. Dennis is freaking out. He 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 says something like, "We're two men. How come our fingers look the same?" He says, "I already lost my wife, and I'm 42. It's creepy." <laughs> like oh, yeah. I like the idea that Dennis is thinking my dating prospects are fucking yes. shot if I don't <laughs> have these right. fingers. Look, I'm single now. I yeah. need to be. I need to. Uh, this is not – I mean, I can't even swipe right on Tinder if I don't have my fingers. <laughs> it's like, I just it, It's just a small little line, but I love it so much. It's so funny. It's also how he describes his twins, his daughters. Like He doesn't, yes. he doesn't like twins because he thinks they're creepy. Yeah. Oh, and I will um, just say – and I like the birdbath line when <laughs> they're, they're trying to – by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, Edward, really? Like, Edward, you're not – like, Edward is actually is kind of um, – an emotional guy and a guy who connects with people on an emotional level more than his brother. Um, So it's a little bit weird and off putting the way he's talking to his partner when she comes in there, the vet. And he isn't like, Hey, we're in a situation here. Uh, How are you? You know, like there's none of that. He's just kind of like talking at her. Like she's a robot and he's a robot and saying like, we need, you're a vet. We need you to sew these fingers on. Like, come on, you know how to have this conversation. Stop. Of course, she's not going to have a good reaction to this, but she's especially not going to have a good reaction the way you're talking to her or at her right now. Um, I do like it, though, when he says, you know, you always get a disgraced vet. You always get a disgraced vet. And she says, I'm not disgraced. And then birdbath in the back. <laughs> I'm disgraced. It's like a, a regular vet and a disgraced police officer yeah. equals a disgraced veterinarian. Because yeah. even she's like, what? Who are you? And he just shrugs. He said, I just thought it could help. <laughs> I, love I know. So That's much. such a great line. That is such a, I love that math. Yeah. That makes no sense, right. but it's great math. Yeah. Um, then... You know, we have the scene that we actually started the show with that audio of John, you know, telling his dad that uh, basically his fingerprints are on file. John's concerned about this because he's literally missing his finger. It's back at the um, at the I'll say bodega. I don't know what the French version of a little grocer is, but 
Um, and and then of course Tom is 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 just just in rare form. Instead of being like, "Hey, your finger got shot off" or whatever, he's just mad that 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 John had stolen his car that was cherry and that his fingerprints are in the universe. Which, I mean, it's like anything I say. Like the list, the listeners of this show and the viewers of Patriot are not dumb, so like they don't need me to explain why. I don't think that's exactly going to get any world's number one dad coffee mugs this year. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a fairly frustrating scene. Uh, they then they then have to go back to the grocery store to try to get the finger, and there's this little moment, and I bet you that you uh, also saw it when you know it's clear that Tom is starting to melt down. I feel I, I feel unusually nervous about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never been in the field. I, I feel unusually nervous, and of course, that's stirring all kinds of emotions of just like if I could just um, you know just crane kick Tom's character right in the. And as opposed to tying a ribbon around his balls, I'd be crane kicking them. I'm so mad at him. But there is this moment where, like, John says, you got to go in front of me. Did you catch this moment? You, yes, and and then and then John smiles a tiny bit. Is that the yes. subtle detail? Yeah, the we again. Yes. Well, we're always on John's smile watch, right? But when he makes his dad yes, go, we in, are. I've, it's been a while. We've forgotten. I've forgotten about that. That's why you texted me last night, and you're just like, oh, you know, screw Tom Tavener. And I'm just like, I thought that you would actually be more overjoyed because the show, which has has treated all these characters with a lot of complexity, has now in this episode, like, there is no arguing it. I think I said this at the beginning of this episode, like. He he is completely exposed as a terrible dad, starting with the I mean, it's a hilarious line, but you were 14. You were driving my car. You could have ruined that car. Like, you know, like right yeah. there. That is like an obvious like where his priorities are. His son is not the number one priority. Um, and then also in this scene where he ends up being a, just a total wiener. I mean, there's not a better word yes. for it. He is a complete wiener. He has spent his life putting his or his adult life putting his son in harm's way. And now he has to do one simple thing. He can't even do it. He's nervous going in. We're going to see he's going to faint in the doorway he's a total wiener out there and i think that john like you know we're seeing also like in the conversations in the car like we're seeing john kind of like not hold back about his feelings about his dad anymore and i think that he was like you know what i like this power dynamic right here i agree i mean that's why that's what i took that as is like when he is like you got to be in front why Uh, because you got to go in first and just seeing his dad I mean, I guess, well, first of all, the question of if I would have been pleased with that scene, I would rather Tom not be a terrible father. I'd rather I'm wrong. Yeah. Because I guess that's how heavily invested in this universe I am. Like, I'm I'm let down by Tom continuing to be a terrible father um, and really supervisor, honestly. There's a <laughs> yeah. lot of HR violations in this I, I miss our HR guy, by the way. I miss the McMillan HR guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. That guy. Yeah, that guy. Have you um, been, have you heard of, try magic tricks? <laughs> anyway, I, um... I would rather like I, my feeling wasn't like triumphant. Like I was right. My feeling was like, oh my god, I want to kill this dude. But I, yeah, there is that weird moment where it's like you can just tell John, even in the midst of all of this pain and horror that he's dealing with, it's just like, I don't know, he's taking some satisfaction from from his, from being in control of the situation and from being very good at a thing that his dad is obviously bad at. He must just feel like you're in in the words of. Uh, Ben Stiller from the movie Billy Madison. You're in my world now, Grandmama. <laughs> like he's just got some, you know. Um, and then, of course, as as everybody who's watched the episode knows, they go in there. Tom has one job, which is just walk in and order a pack of cigarettes, and he faints. And now John is exposed because the grocer recognizes him, and that is, of course, where the episode ends. I love the little action shot too. We see Nan. The police officer jump uh, kind of towards the towards the aisle like we're I, I, I can't think of another show or movie or or anything where you would cut off an action scene right after you just saw the first flash of action. So it makes you very excited for the for the next episode. We also uh, yeah. skipped one very small part, but I think it's worth mentioning is right before we get to the end of the show, I believe we see um, the Bagman's brother. Yeah, I'm uh, calling him Jaywick Sands' dad. That's right. And well, his and his brother is uh, in the hospital, uh, you know, laying on the bed right. after getting conked on the head by the gumball machine. And his dad is at his bedside. And it's a very, very short scene that's thrown in there just to establish the fact that they have John Lakeman 
on their radar. And he says specifically, I think we need to kill John Lakeman. But also, he says, you know, um, I'm just going to keep calling him like Cool Rick Doppelganger. Mm -hmm. He says, this is my fault. And the dad says what you should say, which is, no, this is my fault. Yeah. And so you've got that moment of like, hey, Tom. Take a fucking note. <laughs> this is how this works. I mean, granted, Jay Wick Sand's dad also put his kids in harm way in harm's way, but at least he's owning it at this point. You know, it's like felt to me like no wonder these. You know, I'm not trying to say John's a bad guy or Edward's a bad guy, but you know, the love between the bagman and his brother, and just their general way of being in the world. Now, granted, the bagman may be working for uh, you know the nuclear proliferation of Iran, which is mm, let's say questionable, but. Almost it's like they had a dad that loved them and and the dad also made maybe not great decisions, but it's a parallel uh, it's a parallel track and it's an example of I think how you should be if you're a father and you find yourself in the situation of having dispatched your sons on some dangerous mission and it's gone sideways. Yeah. It just occurred to me, this is kind of disappointing, but you know, I was hoping that at some point we get some of these actors on the show and now I realize I don't think that I trust you in a room with Terry O'Quinn. I think that you're going to carry a lot of baggage uh, into that interview were it to happen, and you might end up, you know, confronting him in a way that I will be uncomfortable with. I'm just saying that if he mentions that fucking car even Mm -hmm. one time during this conversation, I will personally cut his fingertips off. (laughs) Okay. That is my promise to you, Andrew, to the people that may come to McMillan Men Live in Los Angeles, to Stephen Conrad— to everybody else in that verse, I'll kill Terry Quinn. Oh my God, O'Quinn! I will. Te- I will kill Terry O'Quinn as, as as soon as look at him. Can I cut this all out of the show, like the imaginary no. fingers that you would like to cut? <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. I um, I understand it's acting, but I, it's good acting, and so it mm-hmm. gives me a strong emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that brings us to the end of this episode. I am uh, I'm you know on real tenterhooks. For next week's show, and and again, it's like extra exciting for me because I literally don't know what's going to happen. So I'm glad to hear um, it. And again, just a full full disclosure here. I watched all of season two, and obviously this is where this was new to you, so you'd only watched the first two episodes. And even before we decided we were going to do this podcast, I think just as a fan of this show, which you got me into, I should say, I was really anxious about you watching season two because of some of the because of the coincidences you're a very literal minded man when it comes mm-hmm. to your entertainment i think you mostly like nonfiction sure. and documentaries yeah. and then when you are uh, watching a, a, a movie that is not um you know that, that is a that is a uh, made-up narrative i feel like you are really strict with the details and how much it can uh, how much uh, verisimilitude is in there um especially things that you are familiar with like gambling or <laughs> yes gambling. silver linings playbook comes to mind yes exactly a movie that's allegedly about sports betting and uh you know psychiatric help those are both things that i've delved into in my life and i feel like they get them both wrong that really ticks me off but that to me is different like and, and we got to wrap things up here but that's different than this because I can live in this universe because, like you said, it's just I accept that these are the rules of this universe. Mm-hmm. The problem with the Silver Linings Playbook is it's not creating a different universe. It's just uh, Robert De Niro's character saying something about a bet he laid on a football game that would never happen just because of how the NFC East works. Like, that's the shit that bothers me. I'm, I can live with the fact that Leslie and Tom were magically on this train bleeding right when John needed it to happen. Like I can, I can live in this universe, uh, or at least what I'll say is I'm not put off by it. I'm not put off by the high coincidence factor. And but do you agree though that it is that that season two in this high coincidence factor way or almost magical way as I'm describing it is a little bit of a departure from season one? And I, I was wondering if I was the only one who felt this way. And I went on Reddit and I saw people talking about it, and, and they, nobody was putting this forth as an actual proposition or theory but they said one way you can almost look at it is that season two is almost all a dream of john's like it it, because there's a surreality to season two that isn't as prominent in season one i think yeah i mean that's i literally thought he was hallucinating leslie and tom in that moment so yeah it could very much be a dream for him i'm also not i think you're more keen on understanding all of them this is weird because i'm the one who is more linear but 
I just miss stuff sometimes, and I think my brain is to just be like, well, that something happened. Mm-hmm. And I think your your brain is to go back and really try to figure out the logical progression so you feel like you understand why things are happening. I'm maybe slightly less inclined towards that. I watch an episode of Elf, and I think I'm missing half of it. Mm-hmm. So with a show like this... Um, Where did he get the cat from that he was eating? Why is he like Why did he change his name from Gordon Shumway? Did they set up that cat thing, or is this new? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Exactly. R.I.P. The guy who played Willie. He passed oh, really? away recently. I didn't know yeah. that. Willie. Yeah. Welcome I used to do to a good Macmillan elf. Men, <laughs> the number one Patriot and Alf podcast. Right. Right. That's our next plan. Tell our bosses, guys. We figured out the next like show. It. It's Alf. <laughs> I like it. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of Macmillan Men. Thank you so much for listening. We're coming back next week, though, with another episode. Uh, until then. Have a great week and keep it double great. Leads a life of danger. Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. Number.